Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Precision Rifle Network podcast. This is number 12. And uh, you guys have really been chiming in and listening, and I, I sure appreciate it. Got, um, you know, over 1,000 downloads uh, already, and um, a good a good handful of you guys following and just staying up with each of the podcasts as I launch them. So thank you for that. Sure appreciate it. Hopefully you've been checking out some of those affiliate links down below any of the videos on the YouTube channel. That is, of course, always appreciated. And if you weren't aware, we have a Patreon page, and those folks get all the videos first, they get additional content that no one else sees, and there's giveaways for those people. So you might consider checking out my Patreon page as well. So today is going to be all about my experience with this kind of niche, um, rare gun called the Howa 1500. <laughs> um, it's obviously, a Howa 1500 is obviously not niche and it's obviously not rare but sitting in an american built arms chassis it is in the sense that they really only made them in that partnership that configuration for a very short period of time i have some opinions on why that might be and i'll get into that but um so i i bought this thing i actually just happened to be cruising around on Midway USA's website. Now, Midway USA is right here in town in Columbia, Missouri for me, and so it's dangerous, right? If I see something on their website, I can purchase it and I can go pick it up in pretty short order, with the exception of firearms that still has to be transferred to an FFL, and I still have to fill out paperwork and you know the drill. Um, but that being said, um, I have a friend here in town who has his FFL, some point I'll just get my federal firearms license and just be done with it. But at any rate, uh, my buddy Rex uh, has his FFL. And so I typically just do my transfers through him. Um, so I saw it on Midway. It looked interesting. I'd never owned a Howa 1500. So I bought it. So let me just give you some details about it. And then I'm going to talk about kind of going out to the range with it uh, yesterday and just kind of, I've had it for a while. I've shot it a little bit, but yesterday was really my first kind of in-depth experience with it. I've got a review video that's going to be coming Saturday, most likely. So uh, again, the barreled action is a Howa 1500, fairly standard. It's got a 20 inch barrel, uh, one in 10 twist. Um, it is, uh, it is, of course, got the, the factory trigger. It's a two-stage trigger, which I have really come to appreciate. We could do a, an entire podcast, most likely, on single-stage versus two-stage triggers. And it's probably split down the middle between people who like two-stages and people who like um, single-stages. In fact, I would guess there's probably more people that like single-stage triggers just because that's what the vast majority of you know PRS-style competitors are using. Because they set them, you know, less than an ounce, and they don't want to have to do that take up, you know. Um, so uh, anyway, um, so where my hat? I just lost my. I just lost my uh, train of thought. Um, Twenty inch barrel, one in ten twist. Uh, yeah, two stage trigger. Right. So um, onto the AB chassis. Uh, oh, oh my goodness! How do I forget this? It's a three oh eight. Three oh eight. Um, which, you know, I'm not a huge 308 fan just because it's like when it comes to precision rifle shooting, that's no longer the best tool for the job. There was a time when the 308 was the right tool for the job. Now we have better tools. We have better technology. I've upgraded 
same as most of you probably, and the 308 is just a bit antiquated. But it's still kind of fun to shoot every once in a while, especially if you want to go out and have to learn how to manage recoil properly, um, just really fine-tune your fundamentals, and deal with a little bit more wind calling. 308's a, a good option for that. So this one's in 308. Um, I put the Federal Gold Medal Match 175 grain rounds through it, and those were the uh, the Sierra Match Kings, and um, it 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 performed pretty well. Um, I probably took 15 to 20 rounds just to kind of like get on paper and get the uh, get the the uh, the scope tracking true. I think actually the scope base that comes on this rifle is a zero MOA base. Um, because my initial shots were kind of way off paper when I first got that scope out and attached it to that rifle. And I ended up having to, to uh, adjust considerable amount of elevation difference. And so, yeah, it, it just made me think, I bet that this is a, a zero MOA base and I didn't even think about it. So anyway, uh, first 15 to 20 shots was just kind of getting on paper and getting close to a zero. And then I put a three shot group on paper that measured probably about three quarters of an inch. Um, and then I kind of got settled in and let the rifle cool a bit. And I put my best group down there, five shot group that measured 0.4 of an inch, four tenths of an inch. So that's pretty good. Uh, in my opinion, with factory ammo on a 308, you know, that's got more recoil. So, um, you know, the rifle will shoot, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I mounted up a tracked Toric 4.5 to 30 by 56 optic on there. This is their ELR scope. And, you know, the scope is great. I, I did a long-term review of that that'll be coming out on the channel sometime soon. Because I've had that scope now for over a year. And I've gotten to use it on a number of different rifles. And I really do like it. Uh, you know, I could speak to, to that scope a little bit, but that's not really what the podcast is about today. So just suffice to say, you know, on a one to 10 scale, that track Toric is somewhere in the six and a half to seven range for me. It's got good Japanese glass and it's about 1500 bucks street price. And, um, I can at least say it's a pretty good option for, for a, a scope that won't, won't break the bank. So there's that. So um, I also had the Area 419 Hellfire Brake uh, out on the end of the barrel. And the rifle shot pretty well, guys. So after I zeroed it, I ended up taking it, you know, of course, stretching it out, just trying to gather some dope. Like an idiot, I forgot my chronograph at home, and so I just kind of had to do it the old-fashioned way. I started down at 300 yards and, you know, put a, put a shot down there to see where it was compared to my call. And then I would just adjust um, muzzle velocity until I got the numbers to line up. And then I did the same thing at 400, same thing at 500, just adjusting the muzzle velocity until those numbers lined up. And then at about 500 yards, um, I started adjusting the BC in order to get the you know, the curve to line up. And I went 500, 600, 700, 800. And of course it stopped at 800, right? There's that invisible wall that a 308 cannot punch through. <laughs> right. Well, actually I confirmed that the invisible wall for this particular 308 was 900 yards. 
guys, I could not get any impacts at a thousand. I, I walked it right out to 900 yards, had my wind call, had everything dialed. I hit the 900 yard target and then I switched to the thousand yard target and could not see or hear any impacts on plate down there, which I just don't, it's one of those things that I just don't understand. You know what I mean? It's like if I can get good impacts at nine and then immediately, it's not like I'm waiting a while and the wind changed and blah, blah, blah. Of course the wind could have changed, but I had almost no wind. It was less than three miles an hour straight from behind me all day long. So get dialed in at nine and get impacts and then go to a thousand and spend 20 rounds and never get a single hit. Like, I don't know, invisible wall, (laughs) invisible wall at 900 yards. The 308 won't go past 900 yards. That's my contention. Um, but you know, it was a, it was a good rifle. Um, I do have some complaints about the stock on the chassis. So that AB Arms chassis is what I guess makes this Howa 1500 a little bit unique. So let's get into the chassis a little bit. You know, it's it's a completely, you know, it's it's almost like a one, it's not one piece, but it's a, you know, it's milled out of a, you know, solid piece of, of metal, like a lot of other chassis. This one's got, but this one's got, um, you know, a completely enclosed full length fore end which I kind of like. It has M-lock slots all the way around it, except on the top. And of course, the top is a Picatinny rail. And so match that up with the base on the top of the receiver. And it's kind of a, you know, monolithic kind of a look or a style all the way across the top. I like that look. It's classic to me. I like that there's the handguard complete over the top of the barrel. It helps, I think, to mitigate a little bit of mirage effect when things start to heat up and also you know it provides some you know a spot for uh, night vision options should you choose to you know run a a clip on night vision or or something like that so I do like the way that that looks with that monolithic rail up there again I said there's m-lock slots all the way around that fore end I was able to um, to put a few of the MDT weight system, you know, weights on there in those M-lock slots in order to just, I wanted to weight it down a little bit because again, 308, I know it recoils a little bit more than what I'm used to shooting. And so I added some weights, two on each side, and I also positioned them in such a way that, you know, the, the rifle would balance a little bit better than it had previously. So, um, added those on and I was running the Atlas bipod <clears throat> excuse me, on a uh, a little Picatinny rail section underneath the front. And that all functioned well. Um, no complaints about the main part of the chassis and those main features. Downsides for me um, were really kind of twofold. Number one, it's so smooth and rounded. All the edges, all the everything on it was kind of smoothed and rounded. And from a machining aspect, it was very well done. Like it's a beautiful looking chassis, you know, from, from the AB arms. But I don't know, I guess the real complaint is just that it doesn't sit very, it doesn't sit very well on a bag. So we like these wide flat bottoms on our, on our, you know, chassis and stocks so that it can really sink into a bag and provide a stable platform. We don't get a lot of rotation Well, this particular chassis allows for that kind of slip and slide and rotation 
that doesn't really lend itself very well to precision rifle series style of competition. It's not horrible. It just requires extra management. And, you know, we're looking for the easy button most times when it comes to that. Like, you're putting me on the clock. I have to go fast. I'm already stressed out trying to remember everything I'm supposed to remember to run a stage. And then I also have to worry about whether my rifle is going to, you know, slip or slide around on a bag or rotate when I don't want it to. So, you know, I just would prefer having a, a wide, flat, you know, bottom. Now, I could add an aftermarket Arca Swiss rail to the bottom of, of that chassis, like something like a universal option or something from Area 419. And, you know, that would help a lot. So there are solutions to take care of it. The real main downside of this chassis is the stock. Guys, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I don't know where to start on how much that stock sucks. It was, so so to describe it, if you haven't seen it, I, I did post a picture of the rifle on, uh, on Instagram. And again, the video is going to be going live on Saturday, July 30th. Um, so... So the real problem with it is it's not that it's just a, an AR style stock. So it, it runs off of an AR style buffer tube. It's actually a shortened buffer tube though, like a pistol length buffer tube. Um, and in fact, I'd have to look at it and see if there's any difference between a, a pistol length buffer tube and a carbine length buffer tube. I think there is. It's just been too long since I pulled apart an AR like that. It's not my world. I'm a bolt action guy. But anyway, um, it seemed like an awfully short buffer tube. And then this thing, of course, goes on there pretty standard like any other type of an AR uh, buttstock, except that there's not a whole lot of, you know, forward-backward adjustment for length of pull. They knew this, and so they actually built into the system this this butt piece, this butt pad piece that has its own kind of sliding mechanism to help extend. But it's so flimsy, and the locking system doesn't stay locked, and it just allows so much kind of just play into the system. And the cheek piece as well, even with just a even with just a medium size, like height rings, I used the MDT one piece mount for that track scope. And even with just the medium height, so 1.34 inches or whatever it is, I was not able to get that cheek piece high enough in order to be able to see through and get my proper eye alignment with the scope. So I ended up having to cut like a half inch chunk of foam and tape that onto the the cheek piece in order to be able to get my proper eye, eye relief and, and alignment and everything. Not that that's that big of a deal. Like, you know, sometimes you have to fine tune those things and taping on a chunk of foam or whatever you do is that's not abnormal. It's not out of the ordinary. But in this case, the cheek piece, it's, it's basically just mounted on this, this single screw, like, or bolt, or I guess it'd be a bolt. It's a single bolt. It comes up out of the, the stock um, proper, and it's just so flimsy. Guys, I mean, it's so flimsy. I, I thought for sure I was going to break it. Um, <clears throat> it just it just had so much play. So between that cheek piece that had a lot of wobble and that butt pad on there that also had a lot of wobble, um, it was not a good system. I could not get comfortable. 
I thought, man, there's just no way I'm going to be able to shoot this thing accurately because there was so much variation in there. I felt like there was no way I was going to be able to be consistent from shot to shot. And as we know, it you know requires consistency shot to shot in order to be accurate with a precision rifle. So I was not really thrilled. Um, if I had to recommend the whole system, I'd say yes to the Howa 1500 barreled action because it shot well. Like I said, four tenths of an inch. Um, you know, better than half MOA with with factory ammo. Yes, please. I'm I'm all about that. Um, and then of course all the parts. You know, the track torque scope. The the ammo was great. The area four one nine Hellfire. All those things. I did change out the pistol grip too from this crappy plastic chintzy thing that they had on the rifle to begin with. Uh, put a MDT rubber one on there, and that worked well. <clears throat> excuse me um i don't know i i can't recommend the chassis uh very highly at all like if you went into it knowing that you were going to change out that buttstock for something else something like the magpul prs light or something like that um then that would be one thing i think it could be workable it's not all bad i mean it's machined very well it seems rigid the most part the main part of the chassis seems very rigid but you really would have to upgrade the buttstock and probably the pistol grip as well um in order to really be you know in order to have happy feelings about the whole system i would absolutely have to upgrade that so um you know take that all for what it's worth. I, it was a good experience. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to, you know, find the rifle and, and purchase, and then I got a chance to shoot it. And it was a, it was a fun experience. Um, I will probably end up selling that rifle. I don't think that I'll keep it because, it, you know, the, the option at this point is like, I can't leave things well enough alone. So I probably would end up taking that barreled action out of that chassis completely you know, discarding or trying to sell the chassis by itself. And then I'd end up trying to buy a new chassis or stock for that barreled action. And then I'm, you know, I'm getting into a project then, like a bigger project than I want to get into. So, um, you know, it was okay, but I think it's going to go away. Uh, all in all, uh, a fun experience, but yeah, I think it's going to go away. Um, yeah, so let me... Um, Let's transition into Trigger Interactive. So I did a quick kind of Instagram reel on this Trigger Interactive targeting system when I first got back from the uh, gun con, gun conference up at Brownells in Iowa. And, you know, it was hosted by Brownells and the Gun Collective put on this conference. I think I already did a podcast about that. Um, but one of the companies that I saw there, probably the highlight of the weekend as far as new things that I'd never seen before, was this company, Trigger Interactive. And the man that runs the thing is ex-military. His name's Tyler. And what Tyler understands, um, I think, kind of is unique about the training industry. And it really, only people who have done significant training in combat pistol or combat rifle or have been in the military and understand what actually happens in a gunfight, do these type of people actually, um, you know, understand that you need a better way to train than just a square range and plinking at paper targets all day long? Like, paper targets don't shoot back. Um, 
typically you're going to the range under perfect conditions, right? It's sunny. You, you know, you're happy to be out there. There's no stress whatsoever. You're just going out to plank and, and have fun and, and shoot some targets. Well, the problem with that is that can create training scars. We can, we can, we can get in the habit of standing at 10 yards, 15 yards, whatever it is, closer or further, doesn't matter. But let's say with a pistol and, you know, we're behind a firing line because the range officers would yell at us if we moved in front of the firing line. Um, and, and a lot of guys will, you know, if they're trying to do anything that resembles anything tactical, they might draw and fire two shots and then reholster, right? <clears throat> or they'll just start with their pistol already presented, and then they'll just, you know, come up on target, fire two shots, and and be done. Double taps, you know. Two to the body, one to the head, because that's tactical, and that's what we're supposed to do according to the movies. Um, and you'll forgive my sarcasm, because I've, I've been through enough advanced training that I just get really frustrated by <laughs> some of the, oh, I don't know nuances of that. Anyway, um, so the problem with square ranges and double taps and shooting only paper under perfect conditions and no stress is that it, it creates scars to the point that then if you ever do find yourself in a personal defense situation or real life situation, a shootout, um, you know, or having to defend yourself after you've been ambushed by a bad guy, is that you're going to revert to that level of training where all you do is, you know, kind of swing your gun up or down like Charlie, Charlie's Angels style. Um, and you're going to fire two shots and you're going to stop. You might even, you might even fire two shots where they may or may not hit the target. They may or may not affect that target's ability to hurt you back. And then you're going to reholster because that's what you've done in the past. And as soon as you reholster, then bad guys got a hold of you and now you're in a wrestling match and whatever, and you're like, I would never reholster under that circumstance. Oh, really? If that's all you've ever trained is to draw, and then most people don't even draw from a holster. Most people don't even practice that. But the guys that do, if all they ever do is draw from the holster, fire two shots, and reholster, I can almost guarantee you that under stress when your brain isn't working, it's going to revert to what's natural. And what's natural, what you've trained it to do, is to draw, fire two shots, and reholster. So what's better? Well, what's better is you need to disrupt your OODA loop. And if you guys have never heard of the OODA loop, it's, it's an acronym. OODA stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And it is a system that the brain goes through every single time it's presented with new stimuli. So let's just stay in the, in the vein of of defensive pistol use, okay? If, for example, I get ambushed by a bad guy, let's call it an ambush, but let's say he just kind of comes out from the round the side of a building and he's already got a gun in his hand. So I have to observe that. I have to see it. And then my brain, so my brain sees it, I process, or I, I see it, my brain processes it, and I, I observe it. I orient myself to the threat. And usually what that means is when a significant threat happens to a human, um, let's just take, for example, a dog. 
jumping out and growling, like a jump scare kind of a thing. Our physiological reaction is to orient ourselves towards the threat. So our center of gravity lowers, we bend our knees, we square up to our threat or the things that's threatening us. Our shoulders square up, our shoulders actually rise up to protect our neck, our hands come up in front of our face and push out, um, you know, to uh, kind of just keep danger away. So that's that's all under the orient part of Uda. And I could go down a whole nother rabbit hole with that. Then after I've observed it, I've oriented towards the threat. Now my brain's processing and goes, okay, I have to decide what to do. Observe, orient, decide, and then act. So if I if if all I've ever done is draw, fire two shots, and reholster, that decide, that's the only response that my brain is going to decide to do. And then action follows. And I pull out my gun, I present it, I fire two shots at the bad guy, maybe I hit him, maybe I don't. Statistics show that first, first and second shots even oftentimes, probably more often than not, do not hit the target. Those first initial shots are the ones that don't, that don't hit usually. Um, so then, so then if that's all I've done, that's what's going to happen. And you know, you're going to reholster maybe, and then you're going to be like, what the heck? Why did I reholster? Then you have to start your process all over again. You fired two shots, you missed the bad guy. Now the bad guy is still coming or worse yet, he's shooting at you and you have to start the OODA loop all over again observe that he's shooting at you, orient again, decide to re redraw your holster, you know, your holstered weapon and act on the threat. So, so all of this to say trigger interactive is a targeting system that helps you disrupt your OODA loop on the range. So these are these little kind of boxy looking rectangular devices that you attach with Velcro to the back of any steel target. And then there's an accompanying app for Android only right now, but they're working on, on Apple app. Um, and it, within the app, you can, you know, link up any number of these trigger interactive boxes to any number of targets that you want. Actually, I won't say any number. I think the, I think the max is 10 in the app. I could be wrong on that. Um, and you, um, you can program these little boxes. What they have is this little plastic or polymer flag. We'll just call it a flag for lack of better terms. It's just a little, you know, rectangular sheet of polymer that's, that's orange in color. And you can tell the app to communicate with those boxes and randomly pop up an orange target. So let's say you are on the square range and you've got three steel targets out in front of you representing three bad guys. And you could have, uh, you could put one of those boxes on the back of each of those targets. And then you could have a buddy program the app to pop up the trigger interactive uh, little warning flag thing at random times and random intervals, and you can only engage the steel target where the flag just popped up. And you can set parameters in there to have that flag only be active for a certain number of seconds, and then it disappears. It also disappears if you if you strike the target. Like, it, it records that. It actually records um, 
split times and just all kinds of stuff. The, the app is full featured and it's it's very handy. You can set timers. Like I said, it records split times. You can randomize all different types of things. Really, really pretty sweet. Um, another thing that I really like about it is that it's not just for pistol targets or for, um, you know, AR carbine type, you know, sh shooting, defensive shooting. They also have precision rifle kits. So Trigger Interactive, Tyler, he sent me one of the precision rifle kits. And it's got like a signal repeater, actually a couple of signal repeaters that can actually push the signal out to around a thousand yards. Well, it says 1200 and I've, I'll probably try it on a thousand yard range, um, here in Missouri and just, just give it a try before I actually make a determination on that. But as long as it's a flat range, there's no hills or interference, it should go a thousand yards is what Tyler tells me. And so now just picture from a precision rifle perspective, let's say you put one of these trigger interactive systems on the back of you know, three targets out there that are at different distances. And um, you can make it as surprise or as random as you want. Like if you train with a buddy, you could go into it blind. And now all of a sudden, you know, you've got to keep watch over a field where you could have as many as, well, as many as you want, but let's just say three potential threats. And any one of those could be at different yardages, 500, 600, 700 yards. And now you've got to, you've got to scan and keep watch, like overwatch, of three separate targets, and you're waiting for that little orange flag to pop up. And when it does, well, then you have to, you know, get, get into position and, you know, make your wind call and dial in your dope and make the shot within a certain amount of time before that flag disappears. I just really like it, um, again, for disrupting the OODA loop and keeping you on your toes and providing a little bit more stress and realism to training. I just think Trigger, Active, Trigger Interactive is an awesome product that helps us kind of train smarter. It's more than just their tagline. I, it's, it really is a smarter way of training. It kind of sets your brain up to build these neural pathways to not expect everything to be the exact same every time. It helps us to deal with the randomness and uncertainty of real world situations. I really like that. So all in all, check out Trigger Interactive. There's a link below um, most of the current videos on the YouTube channel. Um, click through there and go take a look at some of their systems. Uh, just giving you a fair warning, they are not super cheap. Um, you know, you can get into the starter pack, I think, for something like $400, if I remember correctly. He said he was going to be updating prices. I'm not sure what it currently is sitting at. But I believe the precision rifle setup is uh, something like 700 bucks for the original, or the original, like the, the basic package. Um, yeah, so check it out, guys. I mean, it, it really is a pretty sweet idea. And so far, I'm digging it. I have yet to actually go use it on the range, but just playing around with it here at my house, it's cool. I, I'm excited about it, and I'm really looking forward to, to going to try it. So, all right. Um, you know, I think we've been going long enough. I think I'm going to call it there, guys. Um, thanks for listening. You know, another podcast in the books, number 12. Um, please, you know, follow and like and all that kind of stuff. Share with people. Let them know. 
uh, that the podcast is up and is here. If you're getting some value out of it, consider supporting through uh, Patreon or any of those uh, affiliate links below the videos. That would be appreciated. Guys, thanks, and we'll see you in the next one.